We read from Holy Scripture tonight from the book of Luke, Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 39, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. The text for the sermon is the Song of Mary, found in verses 46 through 56, which we will not read twice, so pay a special attention to those verses 46 through 56. And Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste into a city of Judah and entered into the house of Zacharias and saluted Elizabeth. And it came to pass that when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, the babe leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost. And she spake out with a loud voice and said, Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. And whence is this to me? that the mother of my Lord should come to me. For lo, as soon as as the voice of thy salutation sounded in mine ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she that believed, for there shall be a performance of those things which were told her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior, for he hath regarded the low estate of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. For he that is mighty hath done to me great things, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. He hath showed strength with his arm. He hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He hath put down the mighty from their seats, and exalted them of low degree. He hath filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he hath sent empty away. He hath hope in his servant Israel and remembrance of his mercy, as he spake to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. And Mary abode with her about three months and returned to her own house. Now Elizabeth's full time came that she should be delivered, and she brought forth a son. And her neighbors and her cousins heard how the Lord had showed great mercy upon her, and they rejoiced with her. And it came to pass that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they called him Zacharias after the name of his father. And his mother answered and said, Not so, but he shall be called John. And they said unto her, There is none of thy kindred that is called by this name. And they made signs to his father how he would have him called. And he asked for a writing table and wrote, saying, His name is John. And they marveled all. And his mouth was opened immediately, And his tongue loosed, and he spake and praised God. And fear came on all that dwelt round about them. And all these sayings were noised abroad throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all they that heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What manner of child shall this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people and hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he sware to our father Abraham, that he would grant unto us that we, being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him, all the days of our life. And thou, child, 
shall be called the prophet of the highest. For thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, and was in the deserts till the day of his showing unto Israel. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, there are some things that are best expressed in a song. You almost lose something of the beauty of these words of Mary when you try to break them down and to analyze them. These are words expressed from a soul that has been touched by the beauty and the glory of God. So we must not forget to sing this song in our own souls along with Mary as we seek to understand also what it means. Our preaching and our hearing of this word tonight must be an act of worship as well as an act of learning and meditation. There is rich theological truth embedded in the poetry of Mary's song, however, Just like the Psalms and the other spiritual songs in the Bible, what we have here is a doxology. It is a song full of the glory of God who inspires awe in those who know Him and who does wonders that defy human understanding. It is a song that is intended to fill our hearts with worship precisely by showing us how great God is and how worthy He is of our praise and adoration. These two things always hold hands in the life of the Christian. The knowledge of the greatness of the glory of God and sincere, heartfelt worship. When you truly know God, when you know His might, His mercy, His justice, His truth, then you will sing along with Mary and you will say with her, My soul doth magnify the Lord. That's the theme for the sermon tonight. Mary's words there, My soul doth magnify the Lord. First, we will explain the song that she sings and unpack some of the significance of that song. Secondly, We will identify the soul that is singing that song, Mary's soul, and how that song arises out of her soul. And then we'll conclude by noting that this song is a strength for Mary, and there is strength for the child of God in doxology, in rejoicing in God, in His works, and in His ways. My soul doth magnify the Lord. First, the song. Second, the soul that sings. And finally, the strength of rejoicing. 
The Song of Mary is a doxology, and therefore it is a song all about the glory of God. And to show the glory of God, Mary highlights some of the attributes of God and some of the ways in which God works. Mary sings in her song of God and His faithfulness. In verses 54 and 55, she says, He hath hopen or helped His servant Israel in remembrance of of his mercy, as he spake to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. In remembrance of his mercy, that he spake to Abraham and to our fathers. I don't think, beloved, that we really appreciate the scale of time that passed from the time of Abraham to the days in which the Virgin Mary sang these words. What if you could go back to the time in which Columbus sailed across the Atlantic to America? What if you could go even further back, past the time of Columbus, to see men riding on horseback and fighting in the Crusades? What if you could go go back still further to the days when Charlemagne was the emperor in Germany? The world of centuries ago, of the 1400s, the 1000s, the 800s, seems like a different world to us, even though we can read about it in books and know something about it. But for Mary to look back to the time of Abraham is like us peering back into history to the time before the Middle Ages, to a whole different world with different customs, different assumptions about so many things. A world about which so many things have been lost and forgotten, hidden in the midst of time. Centuries. Yet God remembers. He remembers what He said to Abraham by the door of Abraham's tent in the plains of Mamre in the land of Canaan. He remembers. He remembers speaking to Adam and Eve as they stood shivering and naked in the Garden of Eden, having taken of the accursed fruit. He remembers what he said to Noah in the aftermath of the flood that destroyed the world. He remembers what he said to David. He remembers what he said to Moses. And God does not think the way that people sometimes think. Well, it's been long enough ago that they probably forgot all about what I said and the promise that I made, so I can just pretend like I never made that promise and I can move on with my life. It'd be much easier for me that way. No, that's not the Lord. He hath helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spake to Abraham and to his seed forever, long after Israel had forgotten God, long after Israel had turned to idols and unbelief and darkness had fallen over her soul and her national life. The Lord was faithful. The Lord visited his people in the hour of their need. God is faithful. Mary knows this. And she praises Him for it. 
Mary sings also of God's striking way of dealing with the proud and the humble, with the rich and the hungry, verses 51 through 53. He hath showed strength with his arm. He hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He hath put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. He hath filled the hungry with good things, and the rich hath he sent empty away. Mary lived in a world where some men sat in very high seats indeed. There was a throne in a city called Rome, and a man who sat on that throne, whose name was Caesar. And if you flip the page to the next chapter in the book of Luke, you will find that this man Caesar Augustus was so powerful that he was able to make a decree to tax the whole world. That's an amazing concentration of power which had never before been seen in the world up until that time. The mighty, the rich, the proud. The streets of Jerusalem also were lined with the houses of the rich. There were fabulously rich men like the man in that parable that Jesus once told of the rich man and Lazarus. But Mary is not merely referring to those who have large bank accounts, or who walk around wearing purple clothes and wearing golden rings. She's thinking of those who are not hungry for the good things that God gives to the open mouths of His people. They are rich not only because they have possessions, possessions are not wrong in themselves, but they are rich because they are self-satisfied. They are rich because they are self-reliant and self-righteous. They are the Pharisees who love to hear the praises of men and to be called rabbi and rabbi as they parade through the streets. They are the men who consider themselves to be whole and healthy, righteous in themselves and therefore in no need of a physician. They are the proud in their hearts, so proud that they disregard the poor and the widows or even outright oppress them. Think of that rich man in Jesus' parable walking every day right past the bleeding, putrid form of poor Lazarus oozing out sores, laying at his doorstep, begging for a few pennies or a little bit of bread. Yet God, Mary sings, according to verse 51, hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. In verse 52, He hath put down the mighty from their seats, and the rich hath He sent empty away. Verse 53, Not even the most powerful man in the world is a match for the strong arm of Jehovah God. Caesar may have an amazing concentration of power not seen before his time, but Caesar cannot so much as move a muscle apart from the sovereign will and good pleasure of God. And one day Caesar will die. And then all of his wealth and all of his power will pass on to his successors who will squander it all away. Where is Rome today? Nothing. It's gone. God puts the mighty down from their high seats. The rich, the self-satisfied, the self-righteous, He sends empty away. That should be an amazingly comforting thought to us, people of God. What Mary says here is not only true for the world of first century Palestine that Mary inhabited, 
It's not only true of the world of ancient Rome where Caesar was king. It's just as true in 21st century modern America. Wherever there are high seats and men who boast of their power and greatness, wherever there are those who are rich in themselves, who despise the little child who hungers for God, God will scatter them. God will send them away empty. He will take them down from their high seats and humble them. Yet at the same time that God puts down the mighty from their seats, He exalts those who are of low degree. Verse 52, He hath put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. He hath filled the hungry with good things, even as He sends the rich empty away. There were plenty of those of low degree in the world that Mary knew as well. That poor man, Lazarus, Lazarus in Jesus' parable, was not just a construct of his imagination to make a point. There were men like that in Jerusalem in those days. Men covered in sores. Men destitute of food and drink. Men who had no one to look after them. No one to care for them. It's stunning when you read through the Gospels how many times the beggars are mentioned. The sick are mentioned. The poor are mentioned. The blind are mentioned. And they are like sheep without a shepherd, ignored by the wealthy and the powerful, despised by the Pharisees who are the leaders. The Pharisees would not touch those filthy people, those poor and beggarly people who are laden with sins and probably have gotten what they deserve. They will not touch them lest their own righteousness be marred in some way. Mary could relate to this on some level. She's just a lowly handmaiden who lives in a nobody town called Nazareth in the nobody place called Galilee. And she's one of those people who feared God and who looked for the coming of the Messiah, the true Messiah. And because she was a God-fearer, there was no place for her among the proud and the self-righteous. There was a believing remnant in those days that consisted of people like Mary and Joseph and Simeon and Anna who were hungry for more than just riches and fame. They did not want a Messiah who would come and make Israel wealthy and great again. What they wanted was God. They wanted the kingdom of God. And they wanted the will of God to prevail. They looked for the Christ to come who would make it so And God exalted them. God exalted them. Poor and despised Lazarus is taken up into Abraham's bosom in Jesus' parable, even as the rich man is cast away into hell. The lowly handmaid from Nazareth becomes mother to the Son of God who was sent to bring salvation to the world. The hungry are filled with good things, with better things even than bread and water. They're filled with God Himself, filled with hope, filled with new life, filled with the name of Jesus Christ and His redemption. There's a word here, beloved, about patience. 
and trust in God and in His ways. The attitude of the world is to get all bent out of shape when it thinks that it has spotted what it calls injustice. The poor think that they need to rise up and bring the rich down from their seats themselves. The hungry think that they need to go and raid the cupboards of the wealthy in order to feed themselves. But by doing so, they show that they are just as self-satisfied and just as self-reliant as the men they seek to destroy. But Mary has a different spirit than that. It is not Mary who must cast down the mighty. It is God who must scatter the proud. And it is God who must bring down the mighty. And it is God who must fill the hungry. And it is God who must exalt them of low degree. As soon as I think that I must take matters into my own hands, I'm no longer part of the solution. I'm part of the problem, to use the lingo of today. Patience. Patience and trust in God who puts down the mighty in due time and exalts those of low degree. That's the song of Mary. And if you take all of that and boil it down, what Mary is really singing about here is the holiness of God. That's what she says in verse 49. For he that is mighty hath done to me great things, and holy is his name. The revelation of God is the God who puts down the mighty is the revelation of his holiness. The revelation of the God is the God who exalts them of low degree is the revelation of his holiness. The God who is holy is the God who fills the hungry with good things and sends the rich empty away. The God who is holy is the God who remembers his mercy to Abraham and helps his servant Israel. This is the holiness of God, what Mary sings about here. Do not overlook that simple phrase in verse 49. That's a profound statement. Holy is His name, this God. We think of holiness usually in terms of fire and wrath and damnation. We think of holiness in terms of that vision that Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6 where God's glory filled the temple and the angels covered their their faces and their feet as they cried out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And that certainly is descriptive of the holiness of God. He is holy, which means He is other. He's above. He's exalted. There's no being who's like Him. His standards are not like the standards of men. It's a holiness that was revealed on Mount Sinai. When God's people saw the fire and heard the thunder. But it is also the holiness of God when God takes knowledge of a lowly handmaiden like Mary, a simple girl from the country, and lifts her up. It's also the holiness of God when God hears the grumble in the stomach of the hungry. And fills that person up with good things. That also makes him other. That also sets him apart. That also makes him unlike men who by nature are self-centered and self-absorbed. That gives him a weight 
that gives him a worth, that gives him a majesty, that makes him unique. He ought to be praised. He ought to be sung about. For he that is mighty hath done to me great things, and holy is his name, Mary says. That's her song. Now this song arose out of Mary's soul. Verse 46. And Mary said, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God, my Savior. It arose out of her soul. That's significant to take note of on the one hand because the soul is the home of worship. Any worship that is genuine and sincere worship arises out of the soul. Now, soul is not merely a synonym for feelings and emotions. We have to be careful and precise here. The definition of genuine and sincere worship in some churches in America today is how much does the music hit me in the feels? How much of an emotional experience does this worship create in me? And it's all about having that emotional experience that satisfies me in some way that I really can't define. If worship is not enough of an experience that satisfies my expectations, expectations that have been conditioned by popular culture, television and pop concerts and the rest, then it's not true worship. But that's not the biblical idea of worship. And that's not the biblical idea of the soul. The soul isn't just emotions and feelings. The biblical idea of the soul has to do with the whole inner person. Now the soul is not less than your feelings and emotions. It certainly includes the emotional side of human life. But the soul is much more than your feelings and emotions. It includes your mind. It includes your will. It includes your conscience. It includes your subconscious thoughts and your conscious thoughts. Notice that when the Bible speaks of, of a soul going to hell, it's not only the feelings of that person that are condemned, and going to hell is not only an emotional experience, but it is the person himself. Heart, mind, soul, and ultimately, in the final judgment, body. And when Romans 13 says every soul must be subject to the higher authority, it's not talking about our emotions merely. The soul is the whole part of you that cannot be seen in contrast to your outward part that can be seen. When Mary says her soul magnifies the Lord, then she's referring to that whole internal life. She's not merely saying these things about God with her lips. She's not merely rattling them off as doctrines that she once memorized as a child. Her soul is filled with the glory of God. 
True worship is not just an emotional experience that I cannot rightly define, but it's not either a stale and lifeless rattling off of principles that do not move me one way or the other. It's the filling of the soul, mind, emotion, spirit, and will. And it's the filling of the soul with the glory of God. The God who lives, the God who acts, the God who is seen and beheld and who is known by me. It's also significant that Mary's song arises out of her soul because this shows that this is a very personal song for her and personally applies to her. What Mary is singing about are truths that are eternal and unchanging and objective. She's singing about realities that would be true and would remain true regardless of her. Her song is of God and of His glory. It's a song about mercy and justice. A song about pride and humility, faithfulness and power. The time and the circumstances may change so that Abraham's day seems far off. Yet God is always the same and His way of dealing with men is always the same. Her song reflects objective truth, eternal realities. Yet now those things that are always true and that are objective have an impact on the soul, the personal soul, the individual soul of this young woman. She, Mary, is caught up into the everlasting story of God and His greatness, of His works and His ways. And that is why she sings, Mary sings. He that is mighty hath done to me great things, she says. He hath regarded the lowest state of his handmaiden, me, so that all generations shall call me blessed. Mary's worship is deeply and profoundly personal. And we must understand that though this is very personal for Mary, her song is not arising out of her soul merely as a single individual. It is not only Mary's personal soul that magnifies the Lord in this way. If we were Roman Catholics, we would have to say that these words are only, only Mary's words and that they really only apply to Mary on a personal level. It is Mary and only Mary who shall be called blessed. It is Mary and only Mary whose low estate was regarded by the Mighty One. Mary is special. Mary is above the rest of us. But no, that's not what Mary is saying. It's very personal to her. It's arising out of her soul, but it's not only Mary's soul, it's not only Mary's person. She's singing as one representative of all of God's children, every one of God's children who has ever encountered the grace and the mercy and the goodness of the Holy God. She gives expression to the living experience of every believer whose person is filled with the knowledge of God and His glory. So this is not only Mary's song, beloved, but it's your song. And you must sing it that way. You sing it that way. My soul, my soul doth magnify the Lord. For He hath regarded the lowly estate of His handmaiden, and that's me, or His servant, and that's me. And He hath done great things to me. Is that not true of you, beloved? Do you not know Him that way? And are you not moved by Him? 
by the beauty of His glory. You know Him as the God who puts down the mighty from their seats and exalts those who are of low degree. And you put yourself among those of low degree, regardless of your class and station in this life. You put yourself among those of low degree whom the Lord exalts to the heights of heaven and the hungry whom He fills with good things, with the riches of His grace and mercy. Or are you self-satisfied? Self-reliant, the mighty, the proud. Mary sings out of her soul. And out of her soul, Mary magnifies the Lord, magnifies Him. That means to make Him great, make Him glorious. Now what does that mean? Obviously it doesn't mean that Mary makes God greater than He already is. For God is great. God is magnified regardless of Mary and regardless of her soul and regardless of the soul of anybody. There's nothing Mary can do or does do that adds to the greatness and the glory of God. All creation and everything in creation could disappear And God would be just as glorious as He ever was. That's the idea when the Bible describes God as the one who sits in the heavens. There's nothing on the earth, nothing created, nothing at all that can diminish Him, nothing at all that can cut Him down to size. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh, the Scripture says. The Lord shall have them in derision. He's not moved by the supposed mighty who seek to despise Him. God cannot get any greater than He already is. But the soul of Mary, the soul of Mary can and does magnify the Lord. What does that mean? Well, think of the way a magnifying glass works. You take something small and you put the magnifying glass over it and it makes that small thing look bigger, magnifies it for your vision. Well, the soul of Mary is like the reverse of a magnifying glass. It's not the object that she's looking at and thinking about that is small and that she has to make big. God is already magnified. God is already glorious. It's her soul that is naturally small in its view and in its understanding of God. But as the works of God and the knowledge of God and the beauty of God enters her soul and captivates her heart as she sees playing out before her very eyes the words of the angel Gabriel fulfilling so that the Christ child begins to grow in her womb and her barren cousin Elizabeth becomes with child and that unborn child leaps to greet the unborn Savior who is now implanted in Mary's womb womb, as she sees all of these things, as she beholds her God at work, Mary's soul magnifies the Lord. God becomes great within Mary's soul. She begins to see something of who God is so that her soul becomes the proper seat for worship. And beloved, 
that's not adding anything to God. What that is, is God being gracious to Mary. God being merciful to Mary by magnifying himself within her soul. God is enabling Mary here to carry out her highest purpose and calling in life by showing to her his works and his ways, what kind of God he is. And that highest purpose and calling that Mary has in life is the calling to glorify God, to magnify Him and to enjoy Him forever and ever. And if Mary was able to magnify the Lord, beloved, how much more are not you and I in a position to magnify the Lord in our souls? God has hope in has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And if Mary knew this, when the Christ child was just a pinprick in her womb, a newly implanted, unborn child, how much more do we not know it today? We've seen that child born. We've seen him grown into a man and what kind of man he was. A man who walked uprightly. A man who contended for his people. Who spoke up for the oppressed and the downtrodden. Who gave sight to the blind. Who filled the hungry with good things. We've seen him, the Christ, coming down from his place of exaltation into our darkness, to suffer among us as a man among men. We've seen his cross, beloved. We've seen him splayed out, his hands and feet pierced with nails, his blood, his burial. We've seen him dead. We've seen him buried, but not defeated. We've seen him emerging from the tomb alive. Alive and rising and ascending and pulling his people up, up, up along with him. Beautifully, the Greek construction in verse 54 that speaks of God helping Israel indicates that God helps his people Israel by reaching down and pulling them up. And isn't that exactly who Christ is to us? He is the hand of God. The hand of the Almighty reaching down into the darkness of our lives, pulling up a poor and despised Mary or a weak and beggarly Lazarus sitting on the dung heap and giving unto them a place of exaltation. He is the hand of the Redeemer reaching down into death and into hell and into the grave to pull His people up into light and into life. And He feeds our hungry and thirsty souls with good things, with His own flesh, with His own blood, with Himself, uniting us forever with His person so that we might live with Him and enjoy Him. He reaches out to you, beloved. He reaches out to you, not with a powerless hand that is reluctant to save, but with a firm hand, with a strong hand, with a hand that certainly and efficaciously saves. Do you know it? 
Do you believe it? Then your mouth will confess with Mary the wonders of the grace and the power of Almighty God. My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God, my Savior. He hath hope in his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spake to our fathers, to Abraham and his seed forever. And when you know that, and when you believe that, when you see God in all of his glory, beloved, the joy of the Lord will be for you what it was for Mary. It will be your strength. We read in verse 56 that Mary abode with her cousin Elizabeth about three months and then returned to her own house. Now, if you remember, Elizabeth was six months pregnant with John when Mary arrived, which means about three more months will bring Elizabeth to full term. It's possible that Mary left before Elizabeth gave birth in order to avoid all of the people who came to celebrate the birth of Elizabeth's child, but it's more likely that she stayed until that child was born and then left shortly afterwards, in which case she wouldn't have come home until she herself was getting along in her pregnancy. Well, eventually it came time for Mary to go home, and the child was growing in her womb. And we have to keep in mind what was waiting for Mary when she came home, back in Nazareth. She was espoused, engaged to Joseph, and everybody knew about this. Her parents knew about this. Joseph's parents knew about this. They were likely involved in arranging this marriage. The community knew about it. And now she's three months pregnant without having finalized the marriage. We know for a fact that Joseph noticed the growing bulge in Mary's midsection because he was preparing himself to call off the wedding and to put her away. That was a trial for Mary, suffering for Mary. And we can only imagine what other sorts of trials of faith Mary faced in connection with what God was doing in her life. It's not going to get easier for Mary. When she has to give birth to that child, it's not going to get easier for her. Riding on a donkey, probably, from Nazareth to Bethlehem when you're eight to nine months pregnant is just the beginning of the trials that she was going to experience. Then she's going to be shut out from the inn. She's going to have to give birth to a child in a stable and lay her newborn child in a manger where animals eat. Then she's going to be threatened, and her child's going to be threatened from Herod, who wants to destroy her young son. And she's going to be forced to flee her homeland into a strange country, into Egypt. And when that child grows up and becomes a man, she's going to have to watch him be rejected. Even though he does miracle after miracle and sign after sign, she's going to have to watch as her son is rejected and despised, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And finally, 
is put to death on a cross in which a sword will pass through her own soul, the same soul that here magnifies the Lord. To be associated with Jesus comes with a cost. It always does. It came with a cost for Mary too. But God was fortifying Mary, fortifying her, strengthening her against all of that by putting this song in her soul. God was filling Mary with a sense of his own strength to save not only her, his handmaiden, but to save all of his people and to redeem Israel through this child that she would soon give birth to. The awe of the child in her womb, who that child was, very God in the flesh, would sustain her through all of these trials. The joy of the Lord and the song in her heart would be her strength. And beloved, God fortifies you and will fortify you in the same way. It's easy to hang our heads when we live in a world of disappointment and sin. When the finger of despair touches us, it seems like we can't ever get it out until God comes and sets His glory before us. Who He is. What He has done. But He does that for you, beloved. He sets Himself before you. The wonder of His works. The wonder of His identity. The wonder of His plans and purposes for His people. He exalts you who are lowly. And sends the rich empty away. He promises to fill your hungry and thirsty souls with good things. He remembers his mercy to Abraham and to our fathers and to Mary and to Joseph and to all who lived in that generation. And he will not forget his mercies in our day, though our day seems so foreign to those past eras. Beloved, behold your God. Behold your faithful, merciful, holy, glorious, good God. Behold your Christ and magnify him in your soul. That's how you will find strength in your trials. That's how you will go on, not with head hanging in despair, but with head lifted up to glorify and praise your God, to live with him and to enjoy him forever. Let us say, individually and together, what Mary sang, my soul, our souls, doth magnify the Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank thee for this song of Mary, and we pray write that song in our own hearts and imprint it upon our own souls that the joy of our Lord may be our strength and that we may find strength to face our trials, our challenges, our difficulties with head uplifted. We pray, bless us as we go away from this place. Let us go on into our daily callings and vocations filled with thy goodness, ready to serve thee and forgive our sins Hear our prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.